Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, women's empowerment coach and motivational speaker, Megan Hall. And on this podcast, I'm going to connect you with inspirational women who will share their real stories. And we're going to chat about topics relevant to women today. I'd love to continue to support you on your life's journey. Please join us in the Inspired Women community on Facebook. Thank you for tuning in today and enjoy the show. Hey guys, today I'm here with Susan. Susan Reynolds was born into the military, grew up around the world, and married an airman. She loves to write, talk with friends, spend time with her family, and advocate for people with disabilities. Susan's understanding of the disability community and advocacy stems from her own experiences with disability. Susan has dyslexia, ADHD, a visual motor integration disability, and anxiety. Advocacy and working with people to navigate the complex systems is Susan's greatest passion. And Susan is a second time guest on the Inspired Women podcast. She actually came on, we talked about mental health. So I'll make sure to link that up in the show notes. But Susan's here to tell us all about advocacy, how she got into it, everything like that. So Susan, tell us about your story. How did this happen? I I mean, so you got to be passionate. And I tell people that all the time about you, Susan. I said, Susan is very passionate about what she does. And that's, I mean that in the best way possible. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that, actually. I really, really do. Thank you so much. Um, Well, I, I, it started young. It really did. I was a kid. And I remember us, we were stationed in Germany and my, uh, my parents came home, you know, it was dinner time and we're sitting there at dinner and there's the stars and stripes, which is the newspaper that we get overseas. And there it is on the table. And there was a famine, a massive God awful famine in Ethiopia. Right. So this would have been sometime in the eighties. And I looked at my parents, I think I might, I swear I had just turned 10. And I said, we have to do something. We, we have to help these kids out. And I went to the principal, the school counselor, and the assistant principal as this little kid. And I said, I, I want to raise funds. I want the school to raise funds to send money to these children in Ethiopia. And I came up with this plan. I presented it to them. And I'm not even kidding. A month later, we were doing this massive fundraiser in the gym on a Saturday afternoon. It was we were actually doing a rockathon where we had to rock in rocking chairs for X amount of hours, and and we had to raise funds on who could stay in the rocking chair the longest. And I think we raised like a little over a thousand dollars for these kids. That is amazing. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> who has a story like that? I started advocating for people when I was ten. Just so y'all know. <laughs> It just, it made sense to me to stand up and do something because I saw that, and it was like those god-awful pictures that you see on commercials, right, where these kids are just so sick, and they looked so sad, and I just remembered thinking, we have a lot, you know, even as, even as uh, enlisted families, I remember us sitting around talking to, like, my dad, of course, uh, is a retired officer. So we had a little bit more being an officer's family, but even the enlisted families, we always had so, uh, my husband's enlisted now. And I think that we have a lot. Mm-hmm. I really do. Maybe not everything, but what we have is so great for us. And I always tell my son, we always have something to give, whether it be time, energy, money, attention, compassion, kindness, love, any of those things. Those are things you can give. And I remember thinking that as a little kid, just those kids had nothing. They were the same age as me and they had absolutely nothing. They didn't even have a Barbie. I remember that being like the most tragic thing ever to me was she doesn't even have a Barbie. How 
how can this be that kids don't have Barbies? Because it was, you know, the 80s and Barbies were still huge at the time. So <laughs> they were when I was a kid too in yeah. the 90s. Yeah. I mean, because there was no other doll out there for girls at that point, right? It was just Barbies. And, and it was around the 90s when you were a kid when they started to, you know, other toy makers started getting other dolls out there. But Barbie was it back in the day. So. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I hit teen years yeah. when they started coming out with the new stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. all we have are Barbies and Polly Pockets. That's pretty Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. But I just thought if these kids don't have anything, how can that be, right? Like that made me really sad. And as I got older and as I grew up, I watched how my military community, especially how we would rally around each other in times of need and how we would advocate for families. And I didn't even know that we were advocating, right? You don't know that you're doing that. You're just going it to me. I thought I'm going to go in there and, and say my friend needs help and that's what I'm going to do. But that's really the beginning phases of advocacy if you really stop and think about it. And I remember one of the, the housing units and we had these old buildings that were apartment buildings. And so there were roughly six apartments um, in each building and one of the buildings had caught fire oh, and wow. Everybody in that building lost everything. I mean, so there were six families that were displaced and actually, and it got over to the next building too. So there were more than that, but immediately six families displaced. They've lost all their clothes. They've lost all their furniture. We're overseas in a small community in Germany, no less. It's not like we had the internet so we could, you know, so we could get money to people quickly. We had to look to, to each other, look towards our community and find ways to support each other. And we would do that and we would do fundraisers for these families and we would donate old clothes and toys and bedding and bedding and blankets and towels and everything. And so I thought, what a really great thing to do for people. And, um, you know, it was just, I don't know, it was just one of those things that it kind of stuck with me all those years. And I don't know, I was always that little kid that called out injustice. If someone was, you know, throwing rocks at a bunny, I would yell up. I would yell at this. I mean, that was me. I was that kid like, be nice to that bunny. Or That was me too. Yeah. <laughs> you just, I was always that kid. There is always this fire in me to, to kind of right the wrongs of the world. I don't know what it was. I, I Maybe it was because I loved Wonder Woman, even as a little kid, you know, and I had the Wonder Woman underoos and everything. I don't know. It was, it was just my thing. And so I started out at a very young age advocating. And then finally, I knew something was going on though, right? As I started to get a little bit older and now I'm in middle school and I'm go, you're going through a lot because it's middle school and middle school is just tough. I don't care. I don't care if you're in the most well-adjusted home in the planet or not. Middle school is tough. And I knew something was, I wouldn't, I don't think wrong is the right word, but I knew something was off with me, right? And my parents were going through a divorce at the time. And I knew something wasn't going, I knew something, I was struggling. I was really struggling in school. I couldn't, I was losing focus. I could hardly pay attention. And I had start, I started to struggle the year before too. And finally, I, I come home to my mom and I told her, I was like, I, I need help. And she knew, she agreed. And she goes, I've been trying to get it for you. It just, it's taking time and I'm sorry. And I went in for that big, that big, you know, the big testing that they do on kids, right? But back then it wasn't as, as big as it is now. And, you know, they sit me down and they start doing 
all the special education, special needs testing, all the disability to let's, let's see what you got, kid, basically. And that's what they were doing. That's what they were looking for is to see what can we, what kind of diagnosis can we label you with, basically, is what, what's going on. But I got to tell you, I, I'll never forget this. I think I was 12 or thir- I just turned 13. So this is only about three years later. I was 13 years old. And as, they, as the label started to roll in and it was like, she's got mild dyslexia and she has uh, anxiety disorder and she has ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And she has this visual motor integration where my, and I, I'm never going to, I never describe this one well, where what I see on the page or in my hands or whatever I see, it does not compute very fast. And I have one of my eyes, actually my left eye, when I'm track, like as I'm reading and I'm having to track across, you know, a line, you know, in a book, mm-hmm. my eye will actually skip a little. And so I end up going back and starting over frequently at the same point because my eye has actually had like this little skip to it where um, I'm just, I'm not tracking my, I'm, things are not flowing along the way they're supposed to. And in this, in a school setting, that's not easy, especially if you're doing like timed reading tests and things like that. And you can't do that. I couldn't do those things. And I knew I was learning differently from the kids and I, and I was becoming very sullen and I wasn't myself. I wasn't myself at all. I wasn't sleeping well. I was really unhappy. And I remember going to the school counselor and telling her, this is the very first time I truly advocated for myself, I need help. My parents are going through a divorce and I think there's something wrong with the way I learn. And the school counselor got me the help that I needed. She went to my mom and they, we all sat down and came up with a plan. And the nurse, my school nurse, was getting her master's degree in adolescent psychology. And so she needed to do uh, counseling hours, like one-on-one individual therapy hours with, with students in order to get her certifications. And so she got to work with me. And I saw her for two years when I was in school, like seventh and eighth grade, I got to see that actually seventh, eighth and ninth grade, I saw her because of course, then the diagnoses started to come in. And that was just a whole different cycle of, of stuff. I wouldn't say shame, but I would definitely call it stuff because it's a whole basket full of emotions at that time. But I was actually relieved. It's, it's a strange thing to say, but I was relieved to get a diagnosis because now I could, now there was a, there was a name to what was going on. And then you can come up with a plan for what's next. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of what's next. And that's what I, and I mean, I took that line. I've probably been saying it all my life, but it's definitely a line from the TV show, The West Wing, when President Bartlett would go, okay, what's next? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm a big fan of saying, okay, we got that. Let's go. What's next? Where are we, what's our next plan? What's our next step? And, um, and so that's what I do. I'm a big, okay, so we've accomplished this task or, hey, it didn't work out the way we had hoped. We got to regroup and recover. What's next? And um, so I liked that as a kid too. I, I enjoyed knowing that there was a plan. Now, did the plan work? Of course not, <laughs> because it just never does work that way, does it? Like you have this great plan in your head and you're like, this is going to be perfect and I'm not going to have any issues. Wrong, wrong, wrong. 
(laughs) (laughs) And even the best plans don't work out the way you hope, you know, you have it, what you think is going to happen, but it never, it always, it's just, you know, it's not a bad thing, but it's, you know, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the best plans, you know, not always work out the way you had wanted them to. And, and that happens. So I was, um, I was actually denied an IEP, an individual education plan in high school uh, because I was also gifted. So there comes this wonderful phrase called twice exceptional, where you have a gifted, learning disabled child or adult. And boy, people still act like they don't know how to educate that kid. And I'm like, well, but you do. And it's really easy. You just have to try. Right? (laughs) Yeah. It's so, I mean, wait, what? Try? What? What is that? So yeah, um, I was denied educational services, which by law are my right right? Mm -hmm. Those were my rights as a kid and as a teenager. I was denied all of those rights, those educational rights and services as a teenager in high school. And I didn't, I didn't learn that until much later, but my mom went to bat for me all the time. I mean, like all the time. I had no idea she was, what she was doing. I just knew she was always up there. She was always working with my teachers. And I got to see this example in front of me this person who, who said, no, that's not how you're going to educate my child. If you're going to deny her this IEP, that's fine. But then you have to provide some kind of accommodation that is in her, those are her rights. And I have no problems taking this school to court. If this is the path you wish to choose, then let's go on that path. And I remember now it's, you know, coming time to take my SATs and, and the ACTs and I have a learning disability and I'm ADHD. I actually have to get accommodations on these tests, right? Because, well, hey, again, here's the law. That's, those are my rights as a, as a student with disabilities. And um, the school counselor and my mom were able to get the paperwork in. And I had accommodations on my SATs. And so I only had to take them one time. And I had some of the highest scores. I mean, I did well over what was expected of me because, of course, everyone assumes, oh, dyslexia means you're dumb because I don't know why people assume that, but uh, they do, and that makes me crazy. No, it doesn't mean I'm dumb. It means I'm, I just read differently. <laughs> That's it. That's all it means. And so I got, those, I got this great score on it, and all of a sudden I, was, I felt very proud of myself. But I didn't want to go to college right away because, honestly, I, was, I wasn't ready. Yeah. I, I feel just, like too many kids go before they're reading. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I think 18 is a hard time to make that kind of decision personally. Like that right. for me is one of those things that my son has a, a late August birthday, right? So uh, if he was to go to college when he is supposed to, he would still be 17 starting college. No, there's no way I would be cool with that. You're 17 years old. You could you just got it. You were just able to go in and see an R-rated movie. No, <laughs> you're not even old enough to vote yet, and you're going to college. Sure, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what is that? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that it's okay to wait on those things. I think it's okay for kids to say to their families, "I'm just not ready. Can I please get a part-time job and take some classes at the local community college?" And while I figure it out, and that's exactly what I did. 
I, I sat down with my parents, my mom and my stepdad, my dad and my stepmom. And I said, Hey, you guys, we're going to have a, we're going to have a come to Jesus moment here. I'm not ready for college. I just want to hang with my friends. I just, I, I don't want to do, I don't want to do this. I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not mature enough. And so I didn't. And I'm so glad I didn't because I was woefully unprepared. And instead I got married though (laughs) (laughs) at a very young age, like the next year and got divorced a couple years later and finally went to college at like 23. And that's when I started Old Dominion University. And I was where I want to go next. Yes. You're going to love it there. I had the best time. Although I probably shouldn't say like, oh, I had the best time. It was great. But I did because I made the <laughs> greatest friends there. And I still think back on that time and being there because I was happy to be there. I was finally doing, I was finally ready. Mm-hmm. But it took me till about 23, 24 to get there. I mean, that's the thing is it took me a while. That's the weird part about ADHD that people don't talk about. It t- sometimes takes us a little bit longer than everybody else. But once we're there, you better watch out. We're bringing the party with us. (laughs) It's going to be a good time because we've got energy for days and weeks and months and years. (laughs) And and we're pretty happy. Okay. So, because we finally have caught up and figured out what the heck is going on. But, you know, that's the thing is that I think especially with ADHD people and especially ADHD kids, the one thing we can't do is put that pressure on them to conform to societal, societal norms. They can't be, they cannot be pushed into those boxes. The, the rebellion factor will be high because it was with me. I was told I was supposed to do one thing. I, I no, it was not going to happen. And so my mom knew very early on, if I want her to go right, I'm going to say I'm going left and then she'll go right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that was, that's how it is, you know? And so when I was at Old Dominion, I got my degree in psychology and I minored in special education. And then halfway through school, I said, no, I don't want to do special ed anymore. Because I am, I would be a terrible teacher. I don't know what I was thinking. I would be a good teacher, but I just was like, I got scared. I'll be honest, I got scared and I threw lots of self doubt, lots and lots of self doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided to get a minor in marketing instead. And I was like, I'm going to go into marketing because I really like that. I get to hang out with people. I'm very social. This is going to be a super fun job. I'm going to love it. And I did and I loved it. But it wasn't, it didn't feed my soul. And I might be good at it, but it didn't feed my soul. I still came back to the same thing repeatedly. I really enjoyed working with the disability community because I'm a member of the disability community. Those are my people. And my people made me happy and they fed my soul. And I, I hope that I fed their souls too by not looking at them like they're different and not staring and pointing, but just treating everybody like they're people because they are, they're people. Mm-hmm. You no, know, a wheelchair doesn't mean you're less of a person. It means you're differently abled and you need a wheelchair to get around. For some people, that wheelchair provides them the greatest amount of freedom and independence they've ever had. So celebrate it. Don't mourn it. And it's not something to be sad about, right? 
So I, um, I ended up in an accident, actually. I ended up going, I was in this terrible accident and I busted up my knee terribly, like horribly bad. And I needed months and months of physical therapy and I couldn't get a job because I couldn't drive. So my mom was stationed overseas again teaching. And so I called her up and I said, hey, can I just, I need to come home for a while. Can I come to Germany again and get a job working for the Department of the Air Force? And I just, I need to, I need to get out of this for a while. I, um, so I, I'm back in Germany and I'm working for the Department of the Air Force and I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm doing marketing. I'm doing advertising. I'm working with people. And um, as I'm looking around at all the MWR services and all the different services that are available at every at the installations where I was at in Germany, I noticed one of the big, big things missing was that our youth programs, there was nothing there for tutoring children with disabilities. No tutoring programs at youth programs, at the teen centers, nothing. And I remember thinking, if I can get in front of the right people and talk about this, I would love to see a tutoring program happen. I will volunteer my time to start this program out. I would I, happily, right? And I would always talk to my boss about it. And we started to kick around the idea and kind of pitch it up the chain of command, so to speak. And I didn't get very far. And um, because I was doing our marketing and advertising and our event planning at our facility, I ended up on, a, on the radio quite a bit. So I ended up becoming an afternoon DJ, believe it or not. <laughs> I can and, believe it. I can't yeah, believe it. I, so there I was. I mean, people would be driving around in Kaiserslautern, in Germany, right? And I was like, hey, you're listening to Z100.2 with Susan in the afternoon. <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> I had the best time. I was always getting the craziest callers. And I would, yeah, like the commanders would all call up and like, whoa, dedicate a song to our squadron. And I'm like, no, no, your squadron has not been worthy today. I'm sorry. Right. And, <laughs> Um, and then my husband, my, my now husband, but my then boyfriend, Jeremy, my husband now, um, he was in the weather squadron. So I used to dedicate It's Raining Men to them. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. The first sergeant would always call and be like, no, our, th our, our theme song is Thunderstruck. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> you guys are not cool enough for Thunderstruck. I'm sorry. You're just not. I'll find another... I'll find another song. And so I think I dedicated uh, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. <laughs> and boy, they, they would get so mad at me. Uh, but I, I would sit there and talk to him. Like it would be, I was, so I'm talking to my husband. We finally got married in 2005 and we still had another 18 months overseas. And I would sit at home and we would talk and I would say, I just don't understand where these programs are to help these families with disabled kids. Where, where is the help? right? I don't, where is it? This, these programs were supposed to have been started when I was a military kid and that's been a while now. <laughs> we're talking at least 15 years here. Okay. Come on. Where, where are these programs? And I finally had a, a military spouse friend of mine sit me down and break it down. She's like, okay, so there is this program. It's called EFMP. And I'm like, what the heck is that? Uh. I said, I remember hearing about that when I was a little kid, but my dad retired. So, and then my parents split up and I, you know, he retired. We stopped moving, right? EFMP never, I never had to register, right? 
And she's like, oh, it's called the Exceptional Family Member Program. And if you have a child who has autism, and she started just listing this, you know, all these different disabilities and diagnoses and healthcare problems and, and, but made it sound like it was more of a kid's program. I didn't understand that adults could be on it too, because how she described it is it was more for children. I was like, oh, that's perfect. Well, I, why, where are these tutoring programs then for, you know, for kids in the youth programs? And I would ask all these questions and I never got answers. And I always, I always was so disappointed. So now we're getting ready to move from Germany to Nebraska, which is quite the culture shock <laughs> to go from <laughs> Europe to the Midwest where they have lots and lots of snow. And I remember going to, um, I was, remember I was talking to Jeremy's commander, I think, and asking about tutoring programs for disabled children at the youth center. And no one, no one had, th had ever thought about it. And we were a, now a nation at war because now it's 2006, 2007. And so now we're a post 9-11 nation and the deployment cycles are, are heavy. And, um, you know, it's things, some things are getting pushed to the forefront, but some things are getting pushed to the, to the wayside. And some things are not even at the wayside. They've just completely dropped off. And as I'm seeing our military and our nation change, and we're talking, you know, robust family care and things of that nature, and I'm excited. The thing that we seem to be forgetting is that we have a significant amount of disabled veterans now coming home who have children with disabilities and they need support. And our, and my, always my question was, are we teaching them what their rights are? So when they go into the workplace, they know what ADA compliance means. Do they know what that means? And to this day, and it's probably been 12 years now when I started asking those questions, I still can't get an answer. I still can't get an answer to some of those questions. And I find that incredibly frustrating because just, what today is the 31st, so just three days ago, we celebrated the 28th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. If it hadn't been for the Americans with Disabilities Act, I would not have made it through college. I'm not gonna lie about that. That's the first place I ever received educational accommodations was in college because of ADA. I remember standing in this disability services office at Old Dominion University and crying. I'm not kidding, like big, big tears on the disability services director because I was ready to go to battle. I knew I was going to have to fight for educational resources and I didn't. It was the easiest thing I've ever done. I mean, it was just, here's, here's my testing. I recognize that it's a few years old. Um, but I need these accommodations. These are my diagnoses. And they sit me down and tell me everything that they can provide. And I sat there and I looked at her and I mean, it was, I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, I couldn't even breathe. I was crying that hard. And it was such a, um, a moving moment in my life. It was such a powerful moment to sit there with someone and have them not question my my disability and, and not have to prove how disabled I am, if that makes sense. Um, it wasn't, there was no question. I'm, I'm sitting in that office. That means I have some kind of a disability and I need help and I need accommodations in 
educational settings and I'm going to get them. That's the law. Oh, okay. Well, cool. You guys <laughs> followed the law. How exciting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I saw though, like I got now to go back to the military community. I saw families going through a lot and not knowing where to turn for help. And that I wanted to help and I had every desire to help. And so what I thought my best way of helping would be was to go back to school and to finally finish that teaching certification and then get into a classroom and help that way. Work with kids directly in the classroom setting. And so I did. I, I went back to school, got my certification, and of course we got orders and I was mm -hmm. pregnant and I had just had a baby right before we moved. And, um, and I remembered the very first time I ever held my son because there was this restlessness in me. And I didn't realize I had it until he was put in my arms for the very first time. And all of a sudden, I felt like this, this wave of calm, believe it or not. <laughs> I mean, here I am, a brand new mom. I've had a, a fairly traumatizing birth experience, but I was very centered and very zen and very, just very focused. And I'm looking at him and I'm crying because, you know, it's my kid and I'm so excited to meet him and see his little face for real. And, and I'm holding him and I'm thinking, you are the coolest thing ever. Hmm. You're the greatest person in my life next to your dad. I am going to take care of you forever. And if anyone messes with you, God help them. <laughs> I actually feel sorry for them because they've got to come up against me. But I also just felt this, I felt this peacefulness. And I felt this, um, like this tether in me, like kind of ground me all of a sudden. And I, and I felt very purposeful. And I've never, I haven't ever stopped feeling that way. I think I told my husband just, it was like a few days after we brought him home and I was just sitting there very peacefully holding my son on the sofa and, and I'm rocking him and I'm singing him and he's like, and he, and he actually commented about how beautiful and peaceful I looked. And I said, I think I've been an unemployed parent for a while and I didn't know it. <laughs> I was like, and now I'm finally earning my, I said, I'm finally earning my keep. <laughs> and he goes, an unemployed parent? I said, yeah. I think that's what I've been, is an unemployed parent. He's like, um, is that a thing? So I just made it one. So yeah, it's a thing. And, and I remembered seeing how small Ian was, my son, because he came early and he was small. And of course, they're always talking, oh, you could have complications because he's so small. And, um, and then, of course, you know, there's you know, the, the prenatal genetic testing because I was considered a... Um, uh, what, what did they call me? A geriatric pregnancy because I had my son at 36. And I was like, ooh, that's a fun term. Thanks for, you know, the gut punch right there on my age. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. uh, ooh, that's a great, that's a great phrase. Uh, so I had him, you know, at 36. And, and then, of course, I have a learning disability. I'm ADHD, anxiety. And then we have to go and do all that, you know, genetic testing. And they're showing me, you know, there's a pretty decent chance he's going to have a learning disability just like you. There's a decent chance he's going to be ADHD just like you. And, they, and the doctors and the geneticists, they say these things, and I don't know if they're trying to scare you or not, 
I don't know what, I don't really understand their phrasing. Like their phrasing was very strange to me. Just like you. Okay. So you're making it sound like I have the plague. Right. You know, like you're making it sound like I'm a leper. Okay. Come on for real. Get over yourselves. It's, this is not the ends of the earth here. I think being ADHD is pretty awesome. So shut your face. Okay. <laughs> Go away now, negative lady. Um, but, you know, I, I remember thinking I need to make sure I pay attention because I did have a, an older in life pregnancy. God, I hate that. I really do hate that phrase. Um, yeah, older in life, whatever. Um, and, and, and I did know that I needed to be mindful because genetically I could have, you know, let's see what is getting passed along here. But the big thing that happened to my son was not, was not what something I was expecting. He, because he was born so early and his head was so soft, he developed, and of course they want you to put babies on their back when they sleep. He had that super, super awesome flat spot on one side of his head. And boy, that kid's head was so messed up. And it wasn't just, ooh, that's cosmetically unattractive. It was, yeah, that's, that's pretty severe flatness going on right there. Um, you guys are going to need to fix that. But hey, you're leaving in six weeks. So the new military docs are going to have to hook you up with that one. And we moved to North Carolina. And I start, I got a very, very quick, very, very, very quick. I got a crash course on, on how to truly advocate within the military healthcare system. My records of my birth, of my son's birth, were lost in the move. Of course they were. Of course they were. So I show up for his appointment, and they have no records of him being born. Um, he's not showing up in, in any kind of system. Um, so it's, it's looking like, and since I didn't, of course, bring his birth certificate with me because, oh, stupid me, assumed that my records would be there and his records too. It looks like I just showed in off, off the street with some random baby. And I mean, it was just, okay, well, this is going to be fun. This is a good time. And I kept asking questions and the pediatrician would always say, well, next appointment, next appointment. And I finally looked at her and I said, no, no, this appointment this appointment, you answer these questions, not next appointment, this appointment. And she, she just kind of stopped and looked at me and I said, here's my question to you. If you have no intention of actually answering my questions as a new parent who's moved to a new location, who's had all of our medical records lost, then why do you ask me the question, is there anything you wish to know? Do you have any questions? Because you obviously don't mean to answer any of my questions. So let's just stop being polite and say, if you have any questions, we'll address them at your next appointment and go from there. I'm okay with that. I think honesty is great. She didn't really like me so much after that. But she answered questions. And here's the crazy thing that I learned. The questions that she answered were all, all her answers were wrong. Oh yeah. She That's actually, great. yeah, it's great. She made up policy. Um, none of the policy that she was quoting me was actually real. Um, none of the medical standards she was, that she said she was claiming to use, those weren't real either. So everything was just made up and she just did not want to um, be bothered to do the research because she was seeing, you know, hundreds of kids in a month and she just couldn't be bothered. 
And so I decided to do my own research. And so that's one of the big things is that I tell people when they start advocating, listen to your gut. It's been installed into you for a reason. We have a tendency to really make big, big mistakes in life when we don't listen to our gut. Mm-hmm. Our instincts, are they serve us well. So listen to them. And my instincts were just going nuts. It was like danger, red flag, don't believe her. She's full of crap. You know, I mean, it was like everything that could let me know that there was something wrong, let me know that there was something wrong. I mean, like even the hair on my arms would stand up when I would get near her. That's how much I didn't trust her. And so I finally started to when I started to do my own research and I called her out on how she was wrong on regarding all the all sorts of policy, she and I had a, a little moment and she said, well, it's, it's obvious that you don't trust me as a physician. I said, yes, it is. And I said, so I'm going to need for you to sign off on us seeking medical care elsewhere. Thank you. I was very calm about it. I didn't scream at her. She was the one getting huffy, but we had been through way too much as a family at that point because our rental home had been hit by a tornado, right? It's yay. My husband was in Afghanistan. Um, My son and I are actually living with my mom over an hour away up in the Raleigh-Durham area, but technically we did not have a home to go back. Like we didn't have our own personal home anymore because it was gone. It was gone. And now I'm jumping through all these ridiculous fire hoops with our military hospital in my son's care and my care too. And I'm like, no, not today. You get to be crappy to me later. You can be crappy to me in a month, but today you're going to cease the crappiness (laughs) and you're going to stop being these jerks and you're just going to answer questions. And if you can't do that, then we need to find someone who can. I'm cool with you saying, I don't know, but admit to it. You don't know. Let's move on. What's next? And let's find someone who can answer the questions. Because to me, that's really what I'm trying to get at, right? And that's the other thing is I had to learn when I started advocating again, like really getting into the weeds of the advocacy Um, community in the advocacy world is I had to learn on how to work with people and not lose my mind and scream at them because boy, that gets you nowhere fast. And so I had to, to sit there and recognize, okay, every, not every person I'm speaking with is going to have the answers to the questions that I'm asking. I need to move on then. I need to find that person. And if they don't know the answer, I need to be understanding to them that they don't know something. You only know what you know. You only know what you've been taught. You haven't been taught. I can't fault a person for that. That's not, you know, that's a shortcoming in their, you know, that's that somebody didn't educate them on proper policies and procedures. Okay. Well, that's on your supervisor then. That's not on me. That's on your supervisor. And I'm sorry you're getting caught up in this now, you know, middle person who's getting ready to feel my wrath. Um, But let's find the person who has the answers so I can just go to them and you don't have to deal with me anymore. Cool. Let's make everybody's life better, right? So (laughs) that's what, that was my next big step. And I started calling it, you got to speak some honey. Start speaking honey to people. 
speak so much, honey, that you have like bees coming out of every orifice. Okay. I'm not kidding. Like speak a lot of honey because you're not going to get anywhere yelling and screaming at people. It just doesn't work. You don't, you want to burn bridges. I get that. I've burned bridges and some of them I regret and some of them I don't. Sometimes some of those bridges I've burned, I've actually been standing on the other side, ready to drop the match. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. We don't, I don't need this anymore. Bye-bye now. And then some of them I'm like, dang it. That was, that's unfortunate. Oh, well, that's my, my bad. I made a mistake. I really screwed up. I shouldn't have done that. Okay. Moving on now. But I also know that if I'm trying to gather information so I can put together a better plan of how to get my end result, that it's probably best not to piss off everybody in my wake because that's going to get me nowhere fast. So that was the thing is that I, I, I will never forget, like I said, we had all these awful things that had happened to us seriously in like two weeks. Okay. I'm not kidding. Like my house, husband deployed all of that. And, and then it kept on dragging out throughout the summer, of course, going back and forth to deal with this ridiculous pediatrician who didn't know anything. And, um, and I started, I actually, to help alleviate my stress, I started to learn how to box. It was the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> I have pink boxing gloves still, and I love them. I'll get them out every now and then and like find a punching bag and just go to town. I get so happy. <laughs> so I do recommend that as like your next big thing in advocacy is know how to alleviate your stress. Learn how to box. <laughs> it makes you feel good. <laughs> and you get to the, visualize punching things that have made you mad all day long. But you, because you have to be nice to people, you can just hit the, hit the bag, right? It's great. And, uh, but I remember I was, um, we finally, we got Ian in to see a pediatric neurologist to talk about his flat spot on his head. The doctor then drops like all these bombs in my lap. Um, your insurance isn't going to cover the cranial reshaping helmet. You're going to have to pay for that out of pocket. And I was like, my husband's an E5. How much is this going to cost? Right? Because we just don't have that kind of cash laying around. Three to $5,000. I was like, great. Okay. Well, um, will you guys take a kidney? Right. Yeah. I was just thinking when you said that. Yeah. I was like, do you want my kidneys? I hear they're pretty good. I might need one of them though. Um, <laughs> um, and oh, by the way, uh, try, since, you know, since TRICARE is your insurance, they're going to deny everything. But here, here's the thing. They're going to offer to do a surgery on your son to reshape his head when he's around three years old. That might be a really good option. And I, I looked at this neurologist and I said, I didn't realize that brain surgeries were non-invasive procedures. When did that happen? And he looked at me and goes, oh, no, that's a, it's an incredibly invasive procedure. I mean, it could result in a number of issues. I mean, we're talking permanent brain damage to death. And I, I, I had to put my hand over my mouth to refrain from laughing in this man's face, right? Because I was, I was trying not to laugh in his face because I was mad. And so I was like, well, the obvious emotion to go with here is laughter. What? Okay. But sometimes that's what happens. You're just inappropriate, right? Like I got inappropriate and decided to laugh because um, it was so ludicrous. Like everything was so ridiculous, like what I was being told. And I said, it's, it's, that's the option of $70,000 plus brain operation on my kid in two years that could result in death 
or permanent brain damage, but my and my, which my insurance will cover that. And he goes, yes. And I said, but they won't cover this plastic helmet that's an FDA approved device for about three grand. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And I looked at him and I said, are you making this up? I was like, you've got to be lying to me. This has got to be. I was like, are we on some kind of show here? You know, are you sure you're telling? What is this? Right? I thought he was making it up. No, he was right. And I was driving back down to Fayetteville. I was hour and a half. I had over an hour and a half drive. Ian's passed out in the backseat of the car, you know, because cars, babies, they sleep. And I'm crying. I mean, I'm crying hard. My I'm crying my eyeballs out. And my husband happens to call from Afghanistan because he knew that I had the big appointment that day. And I have to pull over because I'm crying so hard that I had to pull over. And, and I kept on saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And he takes this very deep, deep breath and this very long, heavy sigh. And he goes, yes, you do. He goes, you've always known what to do. He goes, it's just in you. It's who you are. He goes, you're going to fight like hell because that's what you do. This is who you are. You, you fight. You advocate, Susan. And that's what you're going to do. You're going to fight for our son because you're amazing. And you're his mother. And if I was there, I would be fighting right alongside you because I'm his father. And that's what we do. We fight for our kid because, because that's who we are. We're his parents and we love him. And I said, you're right. And he goes, so you know exactly what to do. He goes, you already have a plan in your head, don't you? He goes, tell me about it. And I said, well, this is obviously a policy issue. And I said, so that means I need to figure out where, how the policy, I said, is, I said, what the justifications are for denying these cranial reshaping helmets? What, what are the justifications being used by our insurance company? What are their parameters that they're using? And then I need to find out how would I go about changing this policy because it's a federal policy. So that means I have to do federal level work. And he goes, exactly. He goes, I knew you had a, he goes, I knew you had a plan. He goes, you're just in shock right now. And he goes, and you're mad. He goes, and be mad. He goes, let that anger fuel your fire. He goes, be mad. So that fire and, and your son going through this really spurred what you do today with yes. your advocacy. Yes. And, um, cause I want to wrap this up cause we're, okay, sorry, we're sorry, running sorry. out of time. No, you're fine. This has been great. I've been kind of like sitting here going, wow, like, oh my gosh. Like it's, you know, it's like these little drops in the bucket that like that your son was just that final, like, like drops that you're just like, no, oh, yeah. you know what? I'm done. Like I'm going. And so now you actually don't just advocate for yourself and your son, but you advocate for disability community as a whole. Yes. Yes. I, um, I learned through our experience that we were one of hundreds, if not thousands of families being denied medical services through military, through the military system, through our health and through our insurance on a, on a regular basis. Like, what happened to my kid took the blinders off to this world of people facing the same thing that we were and worse. And I thought that is the most God awful thing I have hands down ever heard. How can you, how can you do this to a child, but not just a child? How can you do this to anybody? 
And it made me so stinking mad. Like, it made me mad. I mean, not like Hulk smash mad, like I'm going to go around breaking things, but I'm going to get mad and I'm going to fix this. And so it's now summer or spring 2000. Actually, it's summer 2012. It was uh, about this time, six years ago. I'm with a lobbyist on Capitol Hill. I've got this little photo journal of Ian with his helmet and everything. And in two days, I did 15 meetings on the Senate side. And I shared stories and I met very cocky staffers who just felt that they knew so much better. And it was a lot of fun putting them in their place. And, um, and sitting there just, just learning. What was I doing right? What was I doing wrong? Was sharing our story the right thing to do? And apparently it was because tr the TRICARE for Kids Act was passed. It, it went through committee. It went through the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee. It passed in committee. It passed on the Senate side and made it into the National Defense Authorization Act in 2000, or 2013, which passed, passed in December 2012. So if somebody's listening and they're thinking, I'm really like inspired by your by your story, Susan, I would like to know how I could get involved in, and it doesn't have to be disability advocacy. Yeah. There's advocacy for everything. There's domestic oh violence gosh. advocacy. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's environmental, there's, right. There's children, there's healthcare, there's, um, opioid addiction. Well, you how do they get started? Healthcare. Like what's a good place to start? To really, so for me, the best place was, was to, really sit down and flesh out the problem. What is my, what's the problem? I mean, is this just something I'm going to, you know, piss and moan about and never try to fix? Or is this something I think is, is a fixable problem? And to me, I think most problems are fixable. So, um, and that's what I did is I sat down and I was like, okay, so these helmets are not being covered by my insurance. Now, why do I feel that this is an important issue? And that was the other thing is I had to justify to myself. I knew why, but I knew other people were going to ask me that question. Mm -hmm. Why? Why should I care? And that's the big thing is you got to get, you got to buy in. You need buy in. So you got to get people on your side. They don't necessarily have to go through what you're going through, but you need their empathy and their compassion. And so that's the big thing too. So your story has to be one that is well-researched, that is well-developed, and you have good buy-in. And you can also then teach somebody something from that story, from that moment that changed your life and say, so I'm doing this for my kid, but let's say you're in an area with bad drinking water. What do you do? You know something's wrong. So you got to start doing your research. Why is this wrong? Why is, why is, you know, polluted drinking water wrong. And well, as we all know from Flint, Michigan, there's a whole slew of reasons why, but you can find the, re do your research. Google is a beautiful tool. Learn how to use it and do your research so you can back up your belief because research is going to, it's great that I believe that cranial helmets are, are a vital component to children's health care, but I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not an MD. So I'm a mom. And it's not that I'm just a mom. I'm a mom. I, I have to justify my belief a little bit differently from an MD, which means I need to do research. And that's a big, big part of it. So as you're fleshing out what the problem is, putting together 
kind of a plan. Part of that plan is where do I need to do research to back me up so my story has legs to it, so it stands up and it doesn't just fold easily. And then you go from there. And, and you say one thing to wrap this all up. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, you and I could sit here and talk. Oh my gosh. I could talk to you forever. I, I love talking. I really could. I love talking to you too. I think um, you're the best person. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I really you're appreciate welcome. that. I was, uh, we have a mutual friend, Casey McCoy, who's also oh. been a podcast guest. And I always tell him like, Susan is so passionate. Like I could, that is one thing I could say to anybody about you is that you have this passion for advocacy that like, if I need somebody in my corner, I'm calling on you because, oh my gosh. But to wrap this all up, if there's like one thing you, you've given people a lot of really great tips in, in your story and wrapping this up. If there's one thing you want to leave everybody with, what would you want them to know? Advocacy is not a sprint. People say this all the time. It is, it is the full-on marathon. Um, it is one of those things where you have to be prepared to get knocked down and punched in the face, <laughs> get your teeth kicked in, to be heartbroken, to threaten to walk away a whole bunch <laughs> and get back up again and face it all over again. Advocacy is, it's not like it's some higher calling because I don't think it is that, but advocacy is not an area where you're going to get fame. If you want fame, don't become an advocate. Don't do it. Because um, this is not a place where you need to become, uh, where you need to go so you can become famous. Um, but what it is, is, it's a, it is it is a way to help those who, who don't know that they need help. It is a way to provide a voice for the voiceless. It is a way to give marginalized people a chance. And it's not a sprint. It is long, long. It's a long marathon. I mean, it's, it's way beyond the whole like 26.2 mile marathon. It is. It's like I'm running an Ironman out here. Okay. I, I still, it's been over six years. I still haven't gotten helmets covered still. And it may take me another 10 years and I'm not going to give up because it may, it will never help my child, but it sure will help somebody's. And that's a really good thing. Yes, Somebody yeah. is going to be helped. And I'm cool with that. Well, Susan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story and your passion. I hope people listening can hear that and know that we need people like Susan because those are the people that are making changes happen and we all can do it in our own small little way. Well, I have to say, I have been following your podcast since I met Casey at the VWISE conference a few years ago, about two years ago. And she and I became friends on Facebook and she had started following the Inspired Women podcast. And I said to myself, I really want to be on this girl's podcast one day. <laughs> I like her message. I like everything about her. I think she's great. I think she is smart. I think she's together and I like what she's telling me. And I'm so excited that I've gotten to do this with you now twice. I know. That's so exciting. Yeah, this is, I, I don't underestimate what you're advocating for, my dear friend, because you too are advocating. You just don't think you are. But please trust me when I say you really are. And you're doing a spectacular job at it. 
Well, thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the podcast for the second time. Yeah, it's great. I will always happily come back and talk more about advocacy because I'm actually getting ready to write a book about my journey. Yay. Well, guess what? Finally. Susan, tell me when that book is ready to get published and we'll have you back on to spread the word. Well, thank you, my dear friend. I appreciate it. And have a wonderful evening. And I, I'm, I'm so thankful for this opportunity. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Inspire Women podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, share this out with your friends and family, and join us in the Inspire Women community on Facebook. I'll catch you next week.